This podcast contains discussion about adult topics. Use your judgment if there are little ears around. Welcome to Doing It. This is a podcast made by Family Planning Victoria. Family Planning Victoria has been running for over 50 years now. We run a whole lot of education programs for communities and medical professionals across Victoria. We also run sexual health clinics in the city and Box Hill in Melbourne. My name is Anne and I'm part of the FPV schools and community team. We go to schools and run classes for all year levels on bodies, growing up, puberty, sex, reproduction, relationships. This podcast is for parents and carers of school-aged children so we can share what goes on in a relationships and sexuality education class and help support these sorts of conversations at home. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Karen Hammerberg. Karen is a senior research fellow in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. She's a registered nurse with 20 years experience as a clinical coordinator of IVF programs. Karen has helped all types of people conceive when extra medical help is required. FPV will introduce the concept of conception to students in upper primary school. We'll talk about the idea of a sperm and an egg joining to make a baby. The most usual way for them to join is by a couple having sex. Sometimes a person needs a doctor to help the sperm and egg join. Students often have lots of questions about this. We know it's really important to answer these questions as statistically there will be at least one student conceived this way in every class. Karen is going to talk to us about what assisted reproductive technologies means. Okay, Karen, thank you for talking with me today and uh, talking through some issues around assisted reproductive technology. My pleasure. Um, you've worked in the field of reproductive technology for a long time, both as a clinical nurse and a researcher. What has changed since you ch- started working in this field? Well, it has changed quite a lot because I started a very, very long time ago. Uh, actually, in the early 80s, when uh, the first few IVF children were born around the world, Australia was one of the leading countries in terms of uh, applying uh, this technology uh, more broadly. And um, th- there was a lot of um, fear and uh, I think a little bit of stigma around the whole assisted reproduction. It was thought that it wasn't natural. There was quite a few um, people with religious beliefs that thought it was um, playing God. Uh, so I think the, the whole attitude towards uh, the technology itself in terms of helping people have children uh, was, was not seen very favorably by some parts of society. But over the decades, and it's now four decades ago, uh, I think we've come to accept that it is a, a very helpful technology to, for, for people who really struggle to have children. And having children is such a fundamental drive for a lot of people and that they have a, a desire to, to become parents. And for those who can't, it, it really is a, is a lot of suffering involved. So um, the, the, the societal acceptance, I think, is very helpful because it means people don't need to be secretive about using technology. So that, that's one of the positive changes I've seen. But I've also seen changes in terms of how successful it is. It, it works much, much better these days than it used to. And, and it's also... Um, 
become less uh, risky because there used to be lots of big multiple births in the early days uh, and that's much better controlled now. Usually there's one embryo put back and, and, and one baby born. So it's safer and it's, it's more successful and it's, it's more accepted. Mm, accepted and expected as well, I think, that that is an option that is available to people if you can afford it. That's so true. <laughs> and I think uh, that has its downside uh, in a way because I think people might uh, think that, well, if I wait uh, till I'm 40 uh, and it doesn't work, uh, I can always have IVF. But unfortunately, IVF is not very successful at all when it comes to age-related infertility. So the eggs that we have, um, and especially it is the woman's age, unfortunately. The, the man's age matters too, but not quite as much as the woman's age. And at a certain point, the, uh, the quality and the quantity of the eggs that we have um, really aren't... Um, IVF is, n is not able to overcome anything that, that's deteriorated in that way. So if you try IVF when you're in your 40s, there's a very, very uh, remote chance that that will ever work. Mm. It doesn't seem fair given we're meant to be born with something like a million eggs. <laughs> they run out. I don't really know where they all go, <laughs> but they do disappear. Yeah. Assisted reproductive technology is the umbrella term which includes IVF. Apart from IVF, what might ART involve? So the, the, the term itself, it's actually something that means that you, you, you handle eggs and sperm in the laboratory. So in that sense, it, it involves IVF, which means in vitro fertilization, and that in itself means fertilization in glass. And there used to be little Petri dishes made of glass in the olden days. Now it's probably little plastic tubes or something like that. Uh, the, the, this, is, this was the first technology and added to that in the 90s came what's called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is uh, in cases where the man's sperm is, is of lower quality and not able to fertilize an egg. There is a technique, uh, the, the, the short term for this technique is ICSI, and, and that's when the, the person in the laboratory picks up one single sperm in a very tiny pipette and inject it straight into the egg rather than with IVF when you add a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands of sperm to one egg and the egg fertilizes uh, that way. So ICSI and IVF are the two assisted reproductive technologies. There are other infertility treatments, but they don't really fall under the umbrella of ART. Can you talk me through the process of IVF? Yeah, so both for IVF and for ICSI, it, it's very similar except for this last part of, of fertilization. And what it involves is that the woman uh, is given a course of injections and they, they have uh, their hormonal injections. And what they do, they stimulate the woman's ovaries to produce uh, a, a large number of what we call follicles. These are the little fluid-filled sacs on the ovaries where the eggs mature. Usually there would be one every month uh, growing and, and, and releasing an egg. But in terms of IVF, you need a, you need a few <laughs> to make it more efficient. So these drugs, these injections will stimulate the ovaries. And at the end of some two weeks, um, and, and during the course of, of, of um, these two weeks, there will be monitoring, so with ultrasound, checking the growth of the follicles and see how they go. And when they reach a certain size, uh, they, they will have mature eggs in them. So that's the time when there's a, another hormone injection given, which is called a trigger injection. And that matures the eggs. And within 36 hours of that injection, the eggs are retrieved from the ovaries. It's, it's, um, 
it's a procedure uh, under light anesthetic, so it's, it is a hospital admission. It's an ultrasound-guided procedure where the ultrasound probe is inserted into the woman's vagina, and then an show, a picture shows where the follicles are, and with the needle, the doctor will puncture all the follicles and, and suck out the eggs, and then the laboratory people will look in the little dishes and they will find the eggs. And a good, a good outcome is some tel- 10 to 12 eggs. Uh, everyone doesn't get that, and some, some women get um, many, many more, and sometimes there's like an over-response, and that can be, um, that's one of the potential uh, risks of uh, IVF is, is that the woman responds in a very excessive way and, and perhaps develops 40 or 50 follicles. And that potentially can be dangerous. But th- there are very good ways of managing that today. So uh, I wouldn't consider it a big risk, but it's one of the risks. Mm. And once the eggs come out of the woman's body, That's they right. join with the sperm on the outside of the body. In exactly. The so, so the man has to produce a sperm sample and uh, the, the, a, a proportion of this sperm, it's, it's, it's kind of pr- processed in the laboratory as well to, to remove some of the, the seminal plasma and, and other things. But, and then some 200 or whatever thousand sperm are added to each egg. And then they're put into um, a little incubator where there's the temperature and, and, and all the conditions are as close as possible to what, what, what it would have been like in a woman's body. Uh, and after a day... The, the laboratory people will take the eggs out to look at them, and if, if they can see what's called two pronuclei, uh, that's a sign that the egg has actually fertilized. And then they'll put them back, and then they'll grow them for another three, four, sometimes five days. And what, what comes out in the end is what's called a blastocyst. It's a very, very early embryo. And, and if there is um, you know, this, uh, one or several embryos, one is put back into the uterus, uh, and hopefully a pregnancy will will come from that. Uh, but if there are more embryos, they can actually be frozen. And if the first one doesn't work, uh, the woman can come back and just uh, another embryo is thawed, and that can be put back, and the procedure is repeated. So the freezing really adds a lot of opportunity because we s- there's more chances for each mm. stimulation. And there's limits to how long um, those embryos or the... Uh, what did you call them? Blastocysts. Yes, can be join, uh, can be growing on the bench in the laboratory. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And uh, in the very early days, we used to actually put them back uh, after two days. There were only about four cells then, mm-hmm. but as it turns out, a lot of eggs that grow to two days, they they stop on day three or day four. So with with better culture conditions, they're now able to culture them to usually it's five days. And at five days, there's hundreds of cells. And that is, if, if an embryo makes it to that stage, they're much more viable. They, they have a much better potential than the ones that we used to put back at, at two days. So that's partly why um, success rates have improved. But it also means that some of the, if you collect 10 eggs, you might um, have seven of them fertilize. But at the end of five days, that might only be three left that mm. actually have continued the development. So uh, there's a nutrition, but it just means that you don't put back embryos that don't really have a prospect. Mm. That's interesting. And we show young people video of those uh, cells dividing and growing as it would look like under a microscope, and they love it. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. And it's so fascinating that we mm. have that information about how those cells grow in those yeah. initial stages. But then there's a little seems to be a little bit of a gap in knowledge in what actually mm. happens after that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. They now have what they call time lapse, which is a little video camera that they have inside the incubator. Uh, so rather than actually taking the embryos out to, to look at them under the microscope, these videos, uh, and you can then put them on speed, <laughs> you know, speed up the... And, and, and that really shows the, the, the division of cells and, and how they multiply, and it is quite fascinating. Mm. Um, when you work with clients, what are their expectations for IVF? Uh, this is one of my um, real <laughs> passions to, to talk about in a way because I think there is a, a real sense that uh, IVF is, is a very high-tech um, procedure, obviously, and I think there is, a, there is a belief that if you have IVF, you, 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 you will have a baby. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not quite as simple as that. So I think people's expectations are probably in most instances, uh, greater than, than what the technology can deliver. And partly it's because even in natural conception, there are a lot of losses, there are embryos that form, uh, but, but uh, you might have a delayed period, but it's an embryo that, that didn't have everything it needed to continue to grow. And the same applies in IVF. So I often suggest that people think of IVF as a series of treatments rather than a one-off, because most of the time, some get lucky, they, they kind of hit the jackpot straight away and they have a, a baby from their first treatment. But realistically speaking, to have a reasonable chance, you, you might have to try three or four times. And, and, and that's a daunting prospect, but I think if you're aware of that when you start, um, you're better prepared and better equipped to deal with the disappointment. And the disappointment is enormous. When you've had an embryo put back, you've seen it on the screen, you wait for two weeks, and then you get your period, which shows mm. that it hasn't worked. It's it's very very disappointing, and it's often called an emotional roller coaster. And I can see why, because it 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 takes you through the ups and downs, and you're hopeful one minute, and then very sad the next. Mm. So uh, expectations really need to be managed, and I think it's very good if people are prepared and informed, and and really aware that the biggest. Um, factor in determining the chance of success is the woman's age. So a woman who's 30 might have a 30% chance if she has one go, and a woman who's 40 might have a 5% chance. So it's a massive difference. Mm. Students often ask us about same-sex couples making a baby. Uh, we might talk about this anyway from grade 3 to grade 6. They have lots of questions. Are there specific considerations uh, that same-sex couples would have if they were thinking about IVF? Yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, considerations because you have to have sperm and eggs <laughs> for a baby for, to make a baby. So I guess with two women, uh, they, they need a sperm donor. And um, some people have informal arrangements and, and have a friend um, uh, offer to give some sperm, but we would probably normally recommend that um, you know using even even for um, when friends come forward and offer to be sperm donors that it's done through a clinic because there's many more opportunities to uh, talk to counselors and 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 have everyone being clear about the implications and and who's going to be involved with the child when it's born. So uh, a lesbian couple would need sperm usually and, and may not need IVF necessarily. Uh, there could be an insemination with, with a donor's sperm. If, if the woman who's going to carry the baby, uh, let's say, has blocked fallopian tubes and, and needs IVF, then it's the same process for her as it would be for, for anyone else, obviously, except that uh, there will be a donor uh, sperm. Mm -hmm. And for gay couples, which, uh, again, we, we've... Um, 
technology has expanded and now includes uh, all sorts of family formations and and gay couples can now become parents as well um, in in a biological sense uh, but they will require of course eggs but also um, a woman with a uterus <laughs> where the baby can grow and that that is um, quite possible but it's also quite involved and means that finding an egg donor is in itself not the easiest thing uh, oftentimes it's a uh, it's a friend or, or a sister or someone like that who, who, who knows the couple who wants to step up and, and help. And then probably the easier part of it is to be the egg donor, to be the surrogate, and, and that, that is usually another person, uh, is obviously a big commitment. And um, a woman has to agree to carry a pregnancy and give birth, but then uh, give the child to, to the male couple. And that it happens, um, but not very commonly. Yes, it sounds like a very generous thing to do. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, students also ask us about biology. And they, when we talk about the idea of donated sperm or donated eggs, uh, they wonder who, who is the father or who is the mother. Uh, so how do people usually feel about using donated sperm or eggs or donating their own sperm or eggs? Or how might they explain that to their, their children? Yeah, it, 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 it is complex. But I think if people... Uh, break it down to, you know, the, there's biology of reproduction, which is, uh, you know, you need eggs, you need sperm, uh, and they need to be healthy. Uh, parenting is, is uh, a whole other dimension. And, and so the people who raise the child, I think, would be uh, naturally considered to be the p child's parents. Uh, even if uh, someone else was involved in, in either the, the providing the eggs or the sperm, and oftentimes they're ref referred to as uh, biological father or biological mother or something like a uh, donor. And I guess a donor might sound a bit um, clinical, but most people have quite a uh, distinct understanding that it's the people who raise the child. And, and um, again, I often think that people who use donor eggs or donor sperm, their wish for a child must have been so enormous. So they were prepared to do all the work that's involved to finding a donor and going through the process. So somehow their child wish is, is obviously uh, very deep and, and uh, having that child is, is, is enormously precious for them. So the children born from donor conception are often very fortunate because they have very loving parents. Uh, oftentimes uh, these days I think we we take it for granted that uh, this will be part of the child's story and that we would would tell them how they came to be uh, and once that's established in early childhood children are very accepting and they think it's um, it's a very interesting way of coming to this world i agree and they can be very proud of that that difference in themselves yes uh, absolutely uh, students often also ask us about the number of babies it's possible to grow at one time and i often talk about octomum because this was in the news quite a bit um, so it's eight babies conceived through IVF. What are the ethical boundaries around around making multiple births? Yeah, that's a big, big question. And I think uh, that's where, as a technology, it's come a long way, particularly in Australia. I have to say the Octomom story was in America and only <laughs> things like that can happen <laughs> in America, I think. There were, in the early days, quite a lot of twins of course but also triplets and quads and that was because the the culture systems were not really very good so whenever there was 
more than one embryo, it was put back because there was such a remote chance that it would take anyway. Plus, freezing didn't exist then. But as soon as, as uh, culture conditions got better, that's when all the multiple births started to come. So there was a big push to really take away, uh, and freezing was available then. Uh, and then for a long time, people thought two embryos were okay because twins I- is not too bad. Best practice is put back one embryo, freeze any others, and put them back one at a time. Another ethical discussion I love having with students is the tension between what is possible with science and what is acceptable to people. And, for example, gender selection is not allowed in Australia, but it is possible and it's done in other countries. So how do these sorts of ethical questions get decided and what do you think the future of assisted reproduction will be? Mm. Yeah. There, there seems to... When, when you think you've heard it all, something else comes up and there's, there's some new technology has evolved. We're lucky, I think, in Australia because we have, um, we have regulation around these things and there is the... the Uh, National Health and Medical Research Council sets out some kind of national guidance for how we can practice. And and sex selection is one of those things that has been banned. It does occur quite a bit, I think, in other countries. Uh, And and it's not something that would would ever be endorsed here. There are occasions when there is a genetic condition that's linked to, uh, mostly it's linked to boys, that, that it can be defendable and I think allowable to, to choose an embryo, test it, and, and, and if it's a girl, put it back, but not if it's a boy. If it's linked to something like hemophilia or, or really severe conditions that, that are not you know, compatible with life. But otherwise, um, that particular procedure is not permitted. There's now discussion about something called um, mitochondrial replacement, where part of the, the content of an egg is not functioning ver- very well in some people. They are the kind of the, the engines of... Um, of a cell and and the the idea is and it's possible now to replace that with uh, the mitochondria from another woman and that's called three parent conception I I, I disagree with that because it doesn't actually involve the genetic material it involves uh, the the content in the in the egg that actually um, gives it energy uh, you could say that, that is uh, debated at the moment and probably will become uh, permitted, I think, for, for people, whether families where there is so-called mitochondrial disease, which is very, very uh, difficult and, and, and comes with a lot of medical problems. But there is now also possible to, um, and it has been done, it started in Sweden, and it's, I think it's been done in Australia as well, uh, a uterus transplant. Some women are born without a uterus or have had their uterus removed for, for certain reasons. We never thought that was possible, but now it is possible to take a uterus from someone else. And, and it actually potentially could be a uterus from an older woman mm. because the uterus is one of those organs that if, it, if it's under the right kind of hormones, it will function into older age. It's just the ovaries that don't function. Mm. So uterine transplant is now the new frontier, I think, or... Wow reproduction and um, uh, it's been successful and and people have different feelings about that but um, it's happening. Wow could a uterus go into a body that was born a male body? I suspect not because um, you would need to have uh, vessels and other things to kind of connect it up Mm. and, and and they would presumably exist in a and it may not be possible to do it to all women either but but certainly there has to be some anatomical um, features present for for that uterus to actually 
become attached to, mm. to, to a person I, and I don't think that would be possible. Well, what about just leaving the uterus on the bench in the lab and growing the whole baby? Yeah, that hasn't happened yet, no. uh, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I'm kind of hoping not. <laughs> Interesting. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Karen, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much to Dr. Karen Hummenberg for that uh, discussion or all that information. Just a few things she said that really stood out to me. IVF technologies have become a lot more successful since the 1980s when they were first introduced. The success of IVF does depend on the age of the woman. There are new frontiers yet to be explored in the field of assisted reproductive technology. Science and ethics will have much to debate. Just listing a few resources, you can find out more about Dr. Karen Hammerberg on the Monash University website. See VARTA for more information about assisted reproductive technologies, including how to discuss this with children. FPV have partnered with VARTA to produce teaching resources and a self-paced online learning module designed for teachers to help explain ART to primary school students and secondary school students. For more information about FPV, go to fpv.org.au. You can follow FPV on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Contact us directly at doingit at fpv.org.au. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. Like it if you like it. Thanks for listening.